Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am your host, Sarah Dong. I am a combined adult and pediatric infectious disease fellow currently living in Boston. Um, Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and consult questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. I will present pieces of the story of a patient's case, and we'll pause along the way to hear from our guest. Like usual, all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. So I would like to introduce our guest for today's episode, Dr. Anu Hazra. Anu is an assistant professor in the section of infectious diseases and global health at the University of Chicago and director of STI services at the Chicago Center of HIV Elimination. In addition to his work at the University of Chicago, he is co-medical director of the Howard Brown House 55th Street Clinic. Howard Brown Health is a prominent federally qualified health center specializing in the needs of LGBTQ people living in the Midwest. His research centers around STIs and their impact on sexual and gender minorities, as well as other vulnerable populations living on the south side of Chicago. These interests are complemented by his clinical work in complex HIV management, PrEP care, Hep C management, gender-affirming hormone therapy, high-resolution endoscopy, treatment of opioid use disorder, as well as medical education. And above all else, he is passionate about the equitable delivery of healthcare to LGBTQ people of color. Welcome, Anu! <laughs> hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah. Um, of course, we say that we are everyone's favorite cultured podcast. So I just like to ask you to share a little piece of culture or something that brings you joy and happiness. <laughs> um, so I think mine's probably a little unconventional. I have to say, I think what brings me joy and happiness is oftentimes like trash television, <laughs> specifically a specific genre of trash television, which oh. is The Real Housewives. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I think they're like our they're like our centuries like Greek tragedies to <laughs> follow these like women uh, through time. Uh, it's it's very it's very comforting and easy uh, to watch. Uh, much to my husband's chagrin, who only allows me to watch a certain amount of television. Mm, yes, uh, but, but yeah, I think sometimes be- you need to just watch something that's a little. Uh, mindless, I guess. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> well, do you have a favorite location, though? That's the real question. Uh, New York, yeah. Real Housewives of New York, okay. by far. They're, yeah, it's high drama, um, and the women are, are insane, but uh, amazing television. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so today I don't have my pleasant uh, pager bell sound because we're switching it up, yeah. and we are hanging out with you in clinic. Um, so we're going to do a couple uh, shorter cases, sort of back-to-back. Um, and so I will start by introducing our first patient. Um, they are a 25-year-old, previously healthy male, no past medical history, um, and he presents with urethral discharge. And so I actually am going to stop right here and ask you to help our listeners think about how to take a comprehensive sexual history and and how to create a comfortable environment when discussing what is often thought of as an uncomfortable topic, both for patient and sometimes for the physician. (laughs) And it doesn't matter how many times I hear advice on this, I feel like I take a little something new to try the next time I talk to a patient. So. 
Yeah, I, I think um, uh, taking a sexual history takes a lot of practice. I think we all learn it a certain way in medical school, uh, but I think really as you go through training, you start to hone in on certain skills and certain sort of language that you're able to use to, to, to get this important part of history. I think when folks come into an STI clinic, getting a sexual history in STI clinic is a little bit different than getting a, a sexual history at maybe an inpatient counter or just a general outpatient visit. I think folks coming into an STI clinic come you know prepared and knowing they'll be asked these types of questions. In general, though, I think it's really important to just give a preamble that kind of emphasizes sort of sexual health itself. Um, I like to start with just, you know, in my general sort of primary care clinics or whatnot, I, I usually just give a, a quick intro saying, hey, I'm going to talk about, you know, spend a few minutes about your sexual health because your sexual health is a part of your general health itself. Um, I say that to really just diffuse any sort of, you know, concerns a patient has about me sort of invading their privacy or whatnot, and then give them a beat to, to talk and say that, you know, hey, I don't feel comfortable talking about this, or sure, that's fine. Um, I do like to sort of um, uh, uh, ask, again, like everyone says, really open-ended questions about um, about um, their sex life itself. I usually say, like, just tell me about your sex life. I, I, I ask them and, and let them lead sort of the conversation itself. Um, and then I do ask them sort of what are their biggest concerns when it comes to their sexual health. Oftentimes, no one's really asked them, you know, are you satisfied with your sexual health? Is there, uh, it, it, how is your current sex life similar or different than what you think your ideal sex life would be? Uh, this is when things like, you know, um, dysphoria with sex or even intimate partner violence can come up um, in a part of a sexual history where, you know, if you're just asking someone, do you have sex with men, women, or both, and leave it abruptly like that, you don't potentially get that kind of stuff. Um, and then I really let the patient lead and just continue to probe further with, with other questions. So uh, if they're able to tell me a little about their sex life, then I say, you know, besides the people you've discussed, is there anyone else that you have, you know, uh, tell me about your other sexual partners? Um, how do you protect yourself against sort of HIV or STIs? And, and um, what would you do to, to take even better care of your sexual health itself? Uh, and then sort of after sort of getting that information, then I talk about sort of a course of action I, I talk about. So, you know, based on what we talked about, I think, you know, these types of tests would be beneficial itself. I, I offer, offer opt-out HIV ST screening really to all of my patients uh, and tell them sort of the importance of that. In the 2021 STD, um, CDC STI guidelines, um, they're going to be revamping sort of the five P's that they talk about uh, in terms of uh, getting a sexual history, um, uh, partners, practices, protection from STIs, past history of STIs, and planning of pregnancy for those who can get pregnant. Um, I think we're really trying to move away from do you have sex with men, women, or both type questions because they're very gendering. Um, I, again, keep it very open and say, you know, tell me about your sexual partner or what are the genders of your sexual partners itself. Uh, when you talk about practices, um, saying really to understand your risk of STIs, i got to understand what kind of sex do you have. And I try to mirror the language my, uh, my patients use. So I, you know, again, not using overly complex language. If they're referring to something like a way that you don't typically refer to, uh, it's okay. I mean, they're setting the tone of the conversation, and it's okay to follow that. Um, ask really specific questions like, do you have penis and vagina sex? Do you have penis in butt sex? Like that kind of thing uh, to really spell it out for the patient itself. Um, but yeah, there'll be great guidance in the, 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 the upcoming STI treatment guide, guidelines, uh, which are going to use a lot of gender, more, more gender neutral language, uh, which I'm super excited about in general. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, we'll try to pinpoint changes for the STI guidelines for listeners as we go along. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
And hopefully by the time this comes out, maybe the <laughs> guidelines will also be out. Everyone is anxiously awaiting. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, all right. And so I'll tell you a little bit more about this patient. Um, so his specific complaints are burning and discharge atherurethromiatis. And so the discharge he describes as sort of watery and white, but he has noticed that it seems more like mucus-like when he goes to urinate in the morning. Um, he has no fevers or other systemic symptoms, and he has not noticed any skin changes or um, rashes or ulcers. Um, he tells you that he's had five sexual partners this year, three male, two female. Um, and then on exam, you confirm and do note some urethral discharge. Um, and so I thought I would, from here, see kind of how you would work up and counsel, plus or minus, potentially treat this patient in the office. Yeah. From his history and exam, it sounds like he has urethritis. And so you're thinking about common causes of, of urethritis in, in sort of this population. Um, I think, you know, again, asking about sort of sexual behaviors and, and what kind of sex he has is, is hugely important when we talk about screening. So obviously the, the, the clear screening, we would, you know, want to screen for gonorrhea, chlamydia, via urine, uh, via sort of our uh, nucleic acid amplification testing itself. But it's also important to ask about other types of sexual behaviors. Does he have oral sex? Does he have receptive anal sex? Uh, because you really want to have a sort of uh, a gonorrhea chlamydia swab essentially at every any orphans that they have sex with uh, and that's really based on uh, our, our knowledge that um, urine if if he didn't have urethritis, let's just say he had like asymptomatic STI screening, that urine screening alone in MSM specifically can miss up to 80% of gonorrhea and chlamydia uh, that might be asymptomatic in the rectum or in the oropharynx. Uh, and even though it's asymptomatic, they can still obviously uh, transmit it to their sexual partners. And so triple site testing, like we say, is, is hugely important. And, and that's again, goes back to why taking a comprehensive sexual history is, is also equally important. In this patient, I think in terms of the workup, I think you know the low-hanging fruit is obviously you would want to screen for for gonorrhea and and and, and non-gonococcal urethritis. So that would include uh, chlamydia, uh, trichomonas. Uh, if you have access to mycoplasmin genitalium testing, uh, potentially that as well. Um, and then you know I think it's important to know that STIs travel in packs, uh, and so um, uh, I would still want to screen him for uh, syphilis, uh, for hepatitis um, A, B, uh, for hepatitis B and C, and then as well as um, uh, uh, as, as well as HIV in the end as well. Um, and again, this is again a great opportunity to talk about HIV prevention in, in folks uh, coming into the STI clinic uh, because you're able to really counsel them on their potential risk of HIV acquisition, and it's a great conversation to jumpstart on prep. Yeah. Um, and so this patient, um, we do triple side testing and his gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomonas testing is negative. Um, but he ultimately ends up being diagnosed with mycoplasma gentilium. And so I, I thought I would pause here because I feel like a lot of times it kind of gets forgotten. Um, <laughs> and so because I think there's some some challenges with uh, testing and also uh, treatment. So I thought we could chat about those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, mycoplasma is is really interesting. So I, I think um, in the old 2015 guidelines, it was actually considered like an emerging um, sexually transmitted organism. So it was something that we were sort of thinking about on the horizon. But in the 2021, 2021 guidelines, there's going to be a whole section on, on MGen on its own. I think um, it's important to know that uh, mycoplasma genitalium can cause symptomatic and asymptomatic urethritis in men and um, up to 40% uh, of persistent or recurrent urethritis in, in men itself. 
like we have a good amount of data of how untreated gonorrhea or untreated chlamydia can cause problems down the road in terms of like a peripheral abscess or even infertility in folks. Uh, we don't have that kind of information just yet in MGen. Um, so we don't know if it can cause epididymitis or prostatitis or infertility and whatnot. In general, MGen is a very slow growing organism and so it's really difficult to culture. Cultures can actually take up to six months actually and um, not many labs have the capacity to do that. Uh, the FDA has, improved, has approved uh, NAT testing for MGen, which is cleared in the urine, urethra, uh, penile meatus, and endocervix, uh, not in the rectum just yet itself. Um, uh, so if, but if you have access to screening for MGen, it's something that's recommended uh, right now. Um, mycoplasma, like you imagine, like other mycoplasma, they don't have a cell wall, so like beta-lactams and stuff are, are not active against mycoplasma. Um, uh, but then, uh, so you look at uh, fluoroquinolones that have activity, um, as well as azithromycin um, uh, is effective against uh, MGEM. But it's important to note that there's been uh, rapidly increasing uh, azithromycin resistance confirmed in multiple studies across the globe. And so the concern is we're developing more and more um, potential sort of macrolide resistance itself. And so the current guidelines are, are really recommending resistance testing if it's available um, at, an uh, at, a, at, a, at an organization. And if resistance testing is not available, um, treatment really goes by doing a tetracycline, so a course, so a doxycycline, a seven-day course of 100 milligrams twice a day, followed by moxifloxacin, 400 milligrams orally seven days, by seven days. So it's really a 14-day course of antibiotics, first with doxy and then with moxy as the treatment of choice for, for mycoplasma. I will say for that initial case for the urethritis, you would definitely empirically treat that person for gonorrhea and chlamydia first. Um, so you wouldn't wait for testing to come back before you would treat, um, and you would treat with the, the new uh, gonorrhea, chlamydia, uh, impaired treatment guidelines, which is weight-based high-dose ceftriaxone for gonorrhea. So 500 milligrams um, times one if they're less than 150 kilograms, or one gram if they're uh, greater than 150 kilograms, uh, along with seven days of doxy empirically for, uh, for chlamydia, since you can't rule it out yet. Great. And I'll put some references, uh, just kind of thinking about resistance and MGen in the consult notes as well. There's a couple good review papers on that. Yeah. So I guess I'll move on to case two now. Sure, sure. <laughs> clinic. Um, all right. So our next patient is a 40-year-old male who comes into clinic um, and complains of a painless penile ulcer and tells you that he cannot urinate. Um, the only other complaint he's noticed is he has sort of some dull pain that he describes in his buttocks, um, but he has no known history of prior STIs. Um, he otherwise has no other symptoms. And um, he says he was last sexually active and engaged in vaginal penile intercourse with a new female partner about five days ago. Um, on GU exam, he does have some numbness in the perineal region um, in the sacral dermatome area. And his neuro exam otherwise does not show any deficits or motor changes. He doesn't have any um, rash. And um, he just has that one painless ulcer that we talked about. Um, so I want to stop here and see kind of what's going through your mind and if there's something you think can kind of tie all this together. 
Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting case. So I think when we think about um, just taking the first part, penile ulcers, I think there's like a nice il- illness script where we think about painless versus painful il- uh, penile ulcers itself. Uh, painless typically being uh, syphilis or early LGV can be a painless penile ulcer. And then painful or penile ulcer or genital urinary ulcers being HSV or, or chancrate itself. But it's important to know that that these diagnoses can shift a- across. So you can have a, a chancre, a syphilitic chancre that becomes super infected and then that becomes painful. And then there are instances of, of either uh, of an HSV uh, penile ulcer that is not always painful either. I think putting this all together, the, the numbness um, uh, in his uh, perineal area as well as his inability to urinate is really concerning for me for something that's going around at his spine, at spinal column. And, you know, I would be concerned for, you know, um, if, if there wasn't the penile ulcer going on, I would be concerned for something like almost like cauda equina, uh, where you're seeing sort of um, inability to, to urinate or urinary retention. Uh, but it's important to know that urinary retention can also be caused by, by infections too. Um, and so typically, uh, uh, not typically sort of uh, cystitis, although um, with cystitis, you would have more frequency than anything else. But different types of um, infections like uh, prosthetic abscesses that would increase the size of a prostate, prostate or just prostatitis uh, can definitely cause sort of urinary retention or inability or for flow out the, uh, out the urethra itself. Um, however, the dermatomal distribution um, and, and, and this nerve, I think, really makes me concerned for potential HSV or VZV, um, um, uh, potentially in this case as well. I mean, there's other, definitely other causes of your intention to consider, um, just like obstructive for just regular BPH, but that doesn't really tie in sort of the other sensory loss that he's having. Um, uh, oftentimes, penile trauma or fracture or lacerations can definitely cause urinary tension as well, any disruption of urethra. But again, doesn't really tie into his other, uh, other complaints. And then lastly, like we all learned in med school, like anticholinergic medications can all cause urinary retention. So it's just doing a med check to see what he's on uh, to make sure that nothing else is contributing to that retention and it's not, a, uh, not an otherwise red herring. Yeah. And so this patient ended up leaving the clinic and went to the hospital because of these symptoms yeah. um, and did have an MRI that showed some sort of swollen radicular fibers consistent with sacral radiculitis. And he actually has an LP and the CSF shows a lymphocytic pleocytosis with about 150 cells. And ultimately his HSV2 PCR and the CSF was positive. And sort of down the road, you find that his um, serology is also positive. And so this was ultimately a diagnosis of HSV-related lumbosacral radiculitis, um, which I learned has another name, Ellsberg syndrome as well. Um, But I really just wanted to highlight a case of complicated HSV infection, because I think a lot of times clinical vignettes get caught up on painful ulcers and recurrent, you know, coming back. And I think it's important to think about it in other settings. So like in pregnancy and highlighting that there can be complications like this or HSV hepatitis. Um, And I really liked the thinking about the difference between urinary retention and having dysuria and how there can be some areas where it overlaps and it's kind of hard to differentiate. Yeah, um, and then you can definitely have dysuria that goes for a while, and then you can develop 
um, if you have either um, prostatitis or whatnot, you can have dysuria initially, and then that develops into urinary retention over a period of time. Or if you have untreated gonorrhea and chlamydia, that can go on as dysuria at first, but then if you develop a periurethral abscess, then that would develop into, into urinary retention. Uh, but like a straight up straight urinary retention from the get-go really does make me concerned about like, uh, like we saw here, um, some sort of uh, nerve impacted by an infection, in which case a herpes virus would be what you'd be most concerned about. This is a really interesting case. Um, um, and, and something that, you know, is difficult to diagnose just in clinic because it's something you would want sort of an MRI imaging for and an LP at that time to to be able to diagnose there itself. Yeah. Um, and then, I, I, you know, I guess we could step back and, and see if there are sort of key learning points that you want to communicate about HSV to the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big bucket, but you could you can pick and choose. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think what um, what folks get, I think, uh, potentially hung up on is like the diagnosis of HSV itself. I think it's important to note that PCR, uh, a PCR swab of an HSV ulcer is still the gold standard in terms of diagnostic. If you're able to swab uh, using the viral media uh, of where an ulcer is, that's, that's hugely important, or able to send the CSF off for, for HSV PCR or, or whatnot. Um, you can also culture HSV. Uh, this happens a lot more in, in my uh, in uh, potential transplant patients as well, who t- uh, sometimes develop acyclovir-resistant HSV. The only way you can determine that is actually through culture. Um, and so if you have a patient with recurrent uh, or relapsing HSV despite adequate therapy itself, sending for an HSV culture would be hugely important to know if they have any antiviral resistance going on. Um, in um, there is serological testing for HSV. It's poo-pooed upon by a lot of ID docs because I think a lot of times people want to get like an HSV serology and because they want to know if they HSV or not. And it's important to counsel patients to know that you know if they've ever been exposed to any herpes virus one or two, um, that their serology is not super helpful because it cannot really determine sort of active disease itself. However, type-specific HSV two serological assays can diagnose people with HSV two in, in certain situations. And so for folks who have recurrent or atypical genital symptoms uh, or lesions with a negative HSV PCR or culture result, that's when a serological assay might be helpful. So when you have something that looks exactly like HSV, the history smells like HSV, but their PCR is negative, that's when a serological assay could be helpful. Um, Again, having a clinical diagnosis of genital herpes without laboratory confirmation, or sometimes a patient who has a partner with a history of genital herpes and they are developing symptoms, but they're still testing positive for whatever reason. There are different types of type-specific um, HSV serological assays um, uh, based on the glycoproteins itself. So there's one specifically for HSV-1 and HSV-2. It's important to note that the commercially available sort of EIA assays um, have um, are, are, don't have a great sensitivity itself. And so you really have to have, to have a, comp, uh, a confirmatory test through a Western blot. So it's really a, a two-step testing that's recommended uh, if you're using serological testing to diagnose HSV itself. Um, and so your patient ends up doing okay. He requires catheterization temporarily, but um, slowly does improve. And so um, this type of complication, it seems like can sometimes be transient, fortunately. Um, and so I that's all I had for this case. We'll jump to our next clinic visit. Awesome. <laughs> this is your longest clinic day ever. <laughs> no, <so> um, <laughs> Um, so our third visit is a 20-year-old transgender woman with well-controlled HIV infection on antiretroviral therapy. Uh, she comes in with a primary complaint of right-sided 
tender neck, sort of the cervical mass. And so she doesn't complain of much else. No fevers, weight loss, rashes, um, uh, interrectal symptoms. Um, when you really press, she does remember that she probably had a sore throat with some lymphadenopathy about a month ago. Um, but outside of that, had otherwise just been living her normal life. Um, and so for past medical history, I mentioned HIV. She's currently on Bictarv and has had an undetectable viral load with a normal CD4 count for a few years now. She did have some difficulty with medications when she was first diagnosed because she was a teenager. Um, but fortunately, since she's been sort of stable on medication, um, she's done well. So she has no prior opportunistic infections or complications that we know of related to her HIV. Um, and she's otherwise healthy. She is interested in gender affirming surgery or options for her in the future. Um, she hadn't really pursued it because she had been in the process of moving and didn't have a great, um, she didn't quite know who to go see. And so for other social history, she engages in unprotective, receptive, oral and receptive anal sex. She's had three male partners over the past year or so. Um, she hasn't traveled at all other than her move. No drug or alcohol use. Uh, she has a sort of clerical um, job. And then she lives alone with her cat, Peanut Butter. And so <laughs> I will pause here and see what are you thinking about and what questions you have. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so I think uh, when we're talking about gender affirming care uh, or how uh, how we sort of approach sort of sexual health care and trans folks, I think it's really important to come from uh, a place of perspective to know that uh, many transgender people have experienced violence, including sexual violence, throughout their life. Um, have have experienced um, uh, probably like not like great experiences with the with the medical industrial complex and often see medicine as a potential gatekeeper uh, to the care that they need or uh, the care that they desire itself. So I think it's really important for providers to have that perspective when, when sort of approaching trans folks and, and understanding that some of that transference they have uh, at the provider, it's not personal. It's, it's based on their lived experiences and, 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 um, and should be sort of uh, thought as such. I think um, not so much in this patient's case, but if a patient was coming, you know, with genital symptoms or symptoms that required sort of a genital exam, I think it's really important to um, to approach it uh, to that patient to say exactly that why you feel like you would need to do an exam and make sure that the approaches are grounded in sort of providing a sense of control to the patient itself. And this also uh, includes just simple things like making sure you're greeting the patient while they're dressed, right? So you're not you're not making sure they're undressed and then meeting them when they're undressed itself. Just explaining what you plan to do and why, really walking through the steps and, and really letting them mentally prepare for what this exam could potentially include. Um, providing information, choices, as well as decision-making ability. I think it's really important to make sure, again, to really center the, um, the visit in empowering the patient to be able to say no or stop when they want. And this really should apply to every patient, not just trans patients itself, uh, really. Uh, but this is something that, you know, uh, is a, 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 an approach that has been really accepted widely in, in a way of allowing, allowing at least trans folks to take back some control in, in, in the exam room itself. Um, the physical, so a lot of um, EMRs are, are, are organizing sort of what they call organ inventory, inventories in general. 
And it would be a sort of an inventory of what organs does a person have. And, and this is sort of to talking more on the lines of like cancer screenings or whatnot. So, you know, for a, for a transmasculine person that they're not getting pop-ups on my chart to continue getting pap smears or whatnot if they've had a something of hysterectomy. Uh, things like that is, is all about providing gender-affirming care. And we have the means to do it uh, with our current systems in place itself. And so if you have the ability to, to be part of like your SOGI or the sexual gender identity sort of EMR sort of team or whatnot and you have experience in care trans folks it's really important to to voice the your ability to be part of that and and, and create sort of an EMR culture itself that that would be trans inclusive um, in general any physical exam um, should really just focus on the organs that are present um, and have potential for infection based on uh, based on sexual history itself and again if a patient doesn't feel comfortable um, doing sort of a in a genital exam, that's completely fine. Uh, and we would just be able to talk about empiric treatments potentially without without examining um, if, if needed itself. Yeah. Um, and so in our exam of this patient, um, I was she's afebrile, her vital signs were normal. Um, she has no oral lesions. Um, and then this mass that she had noted as sort of the right anterior cervical chain, it's very tender. It is about four centimeters or so. And she does have sort of bilateral scattered smaller lymph nodes that are um, palpable, but she also has several in the right axilla um, and certainly the right supraclavicular chains. Otherwise, no other concerning changes on exam. And so labs that we have initially is that she has a normal CBC, normal inflammatory markers, normal chemistry and LFTs. There is some concern for lymphoma and actually her PCP had set her up to get a CT neck. So I'm going to give us that information. And so she had a scan and it showed sort of diffuse right-sided cervical adenopathy that correlated to what we saw on the exam. Um, but there is an irregular sort of complex of nodes that's about four by five by three centimeters. Um, and it specifically comments that it appears a little bit necrotic in the center of that. I want to see kind of what you're worried about now with the imaging findings that we have back yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, when we think about um, cervical lymphadenopathy, a few things come to mind. I think the, the first two major things that come to mind, particularly in folks living with HIV, um, is malignancies and infection itself. I think in malignancies, um, um, and it doesn't seem like that's the case in, in this uh, in this person's uh, uh, presentation based on their CD4 count, um, uh, but you would be concerned for potential kaposis uh, that can present as lymphadenopathy as well, um, as well as potential lymphomas, specifically those that affect people living with HIV, which would be a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma itself. Um, uh, you could see skin neoplasms um, uh, present this way, but again, I, I'm not sure how to tie that in given how young she is as well as well. Um, but really, in terms of malignancies, what I would be most concerned about would be, I think, uh, Kaposi's and, 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 and some sort of lymphoma uh, itself. Infections opens a huge door, I think, uh, of issues. Um, she, you know, she's immunocompetent, so you know that also sort of helps reduce um, potential the potential differential. Whenever I think of infections, and this is, you know, I think a lot of folks think about it this way. I think of, you know, uh, based on you know bacterial, viral, um, and uh, fungal, parasitic, and that just helps just sort of just organize the way I, I, I think about how to approach a really broad differential in someone. <laughs> when I think about 
isolated, you know, cervical lymphadenopathy, and the fact that they have a cat, uh, you can't ignore Bartonella or Bartonellosis uh, at all. Um, so it's definitely something that I think about, although I don't want to sort of hinge on that just yet. Um, you can see sort of cutaneous infections, just staph and strep also present as sort of lymphadenopathy or isolated lymphadenopathy. Primary and secondary syphilis can definitely also uh, present with uh, this kind of lymphadenopathy itself. Um, uh, typically wouldn't be irregular or have like a necrotic center or anything like that, but uh, but um, but just given the the risk of syphilis in folks living with HIV, it's something that definitely would be on my differential. Uh, tuberculosis, if she's experienced homelessness or incarceration, she's definitely at risk for sort of community-driven or community-transmitted tuberculosis. Uh, something like scrofula, which would be like the cervical tuberculosis lymphadenitis, uh, you could see present this way. <clears throat> um, uh, tularemia, she like the classic board question of uh, you know having a lawnmower run over a squirrel in Alabama, um, uh, but maybe less likely so uh, in her. And then the other favorite sort of morning report question is like Lemire syndrome, um, uh, if you would see septic thrombophlebitis, which may look like um, cervical chain lymphadenopathy, but it's actually the, the thrombophlebitis of the intral jugular vein, although you probably would have seen that on the CT neck itself. Um, uh, you know, as far as fungal thinking of endemic uh, mycoses, you can sometimes see this type of irregular lymphadenopathy with histo or blasto itself. Um, and then uh, in terms of viral uh, pictures, you know, typically viral um, sort of lymphadenopathy would not be an isolated lymphadenopathy. You would almost sometimes see either uh, uh, bilateral lymphadenopathy potentially with uh, things like adenovirus, cytomegalovirus, virus, or, or herpes zoster itself. Um, you know, if, if they are not up to date in the vaccinations. You could think about rubella um, uh, and potentially even mumps, um, uh, if that's the case, depending on what this actually looks like on, on exam. Uh, but yeah, a broad differential <laughs> itself, uh, but um, uh, some things to think about for sure. Yeah. Um, and since there were so many things kind of swirling around, she was admitted um, and was placed on IV amsobactam until things could sort of be figured out and she could be evaluated further. Um, so she did have a evaluation for possible um, active TB disease, which was negative. Um, and then she ultimately had a core biopsy of um, this area in her, on the right side of her neck. The path showed granulomatous inflammation, but no obvious evidence of malignancy her flow cytometry and cytogenetics were negative, and really all other evaluation for lymphoma, including um, torso CT imaging, was negative. And so at kind of the same time, she had a lot of infectious tests that were slowly coming back. <laughs> and so her CMV EBV testing demonstrated evidence of prior infection with a positive IgG, um, but viral loads were negative. Her toxoplasma serology was negative. Her syphilis antibody was negative. And then Bartonella, histoplasma, blasto, Lyme, brucella, all of these tests were sent. Uh, they're either pending slash they're going to be negative. <laughs> um, and I mentioned that her um, sputum was negative for AFB smear and NAT. Um, but an oral uh, swab was positive for chlamydia trachomatis and gonorrhea negative thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm, uh, I, we didn't even touch upon potential STIs other than syphilis itself. But, yeah. but true. So so that's really, it's, that's very interesting. So her oral sort of NAT testing came back positive for chlamydia in the setting of 
isolymphadenopathy that's painful like this, you have to consider lymphogranuloma venarium or LGV for sure. I, um, given like the history and everything together, I would think of this as cervical LGV, something that's much more rare in the United States. I think we think of more of procti LGV proctitis itself. Uh, but uh, but given that positive chlamydia NAT uh, from her oropharynx, uh, I would uh, go ahead and empirically treat this as, as LGV with a 21-day course of, of doxycycline. Yeah. Um, and so way down the road, we do get LGV serology back um, with an IgG titer of one to over 2000. And so um, that ends up sort of being the final diagnosis. She ends up getting a course for sort of presumed bacterial infection because everyone wasn't quite sure and then ends up getting doxycycline actually for about four weeks. Um, but I thought we could talk a little bit about LGV and treatment. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I think LGV uh, ha has been sort of, I think, uh, a major player in um, symptomatic STIs now in the United States for the very, like for the past five to seven years too. Um, there's been a lot of um, uh, sort of uh, surveillance studies looking at symptomatic proctitis both in New York City and San Francisco, um, seeing rates as high as 23% and 43% uh, positivity for LGV or treatment for LGV in the setting of proctitis. Um, and the predominance of those risk factors are folks living with HIV and, and young men who have sex with men and trans women who have sex with men itself. So I think, you know, uh, it's important to note that, um, that LGV is a clinical diagnosis. Uh, it's really the diagnosis is, is based in sort of someone's clinical suspicion, the correct epidemiology, as well as the presence of a, a positive chlamydia NAT test itself. If you have at least two of those three things, um, you really can clinch the diagnosis of LGV pretty quickly and, and, and be able to treat it, with, again, with a pretty straightforward treatment regimen. Uh, chlamydia serologies, um, sort of the complement fixation tests, um, you know, are great to help confirm a diagnosis, but they have no sort of established diagnostic utility. Um, there have been studies showing that the chlamydia serologies are not always very dependable in coming back positive for, for LGV, and you shouldn't wait for that to come back before you start empiric treatment, because oftentimes that's a send-out test and can take weeks to come back, um, and so you don't want to delay treatment for LGV until uh, uh, for that test itself, and, and you would just start it and send off the test to see if it does, is positive or not. But really based on, on the CDC guidance, it's, it's really a clinical diagnosis or a clinical picture, and you can treat empirically. Um, there, you know, the results of LGBT-specific molecular testing is not really available for management. Um, uh, there are things that are being sort of in the pipeline of, of trying to see if there are ways that we can do molecular testing for sort of LGBT-specific chlamydia serologies, uh, but that's not really there yet. So really, again, the mainstay is a clinical diagnosis with presumptive treatment. Uh, and again, proctocolitis is, is really the, 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 <clears throat> the major um, um, symptom that we see here in the United States. And oftentimes what this happens is, is someone comes in with sort of proctitis or rectal discharge, they have a positive chlamydia NAT, and they're just treated for with a gram of azithro or seven days of doxy. However, they come back a week or two later with ongoing symptoms. And so if you're seeing this, the, your, your, your suspicion for LGB should be high, and this patient may need a longer course of doxycycline to treat the LGB itself. Yeah. I like how we've had two of these cases that help think about what needs to be on your mind if the patient comes back because they didn't get better. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, when I was reading, I think thinking about LGV as causing these sort of extra genital site infections or proctitis is really important. Um, and I was reading something that helped me frame LGV that I guess I should have thought of, but I didn't before is that it's 
really a disease of lymphatic tissue, whereas the other chlamydial infections are sort of mucosa. And yeah. after I read that, I was like, oh, that's going to help me remember it. So I, I don't know if any of the listeners will help them, but it, it helps me a lot to remember LGV. Because I think I haven't seen very much. And it's hard for me. I think it was really hard for me to separate separate it out, you know, as you yeah. go through your STI yeah, lectures yeah, and yeah. so on. Yeah, because they're all drained into the inguinal lymph nodes. Yeah. And then you have the inguinal lymphadenopathy um, with LGV itself, which can become quite painful and then become bubbles that need to be drained or, or whatnot. No, that's a great way of thinking about it. For sure. Yeah. Um, great. And so we have one last patient. You're cool. almost there. <laughs> um, and so our last patient is an adolescent or pediatric patient, um, a 16-year-old female who comes in with abdominal pain, and she just feels crummy and fatigued. She's previously healthy, is on no meds, and she swears up, down, that she is not having sex, both with her parents in the room and when they are asked to step outside. Um, but on exam, she is uh, febrile with a temperature of 38.5 Celsius and has diffuse abdominal tenderness um, and then ultimately is found to have cervical motion tenderness and purulent discharge from the endocervix on her exam. And so this one is not really meant to be a diagnostic mystery. Hopefully everyone is thinking about pelvic inflammatory disease. Um, but I think what sometimes gets billed as simple is not always the case. And I, I think it's important for us to talk about antibiotic selection and PID. Um, yeah. 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 No, for sure. So I, I think, um, uh, yeah, I, I think the, the, the clinical exam here is a classic PID exam, so motion tenderness, you know, mucoplane discharge. Typically, I see folks that are sort of almost hunched over in pain, like it's hard for them to sit straight or lie straight on an exam table, um, given sort of the inflammation um, in their pelvis itself. Um, you know, I, I think uh, what we know is actually the, the proportion of PID cases attributed directly to gonorrhea and chlamydia have been decreasing over time. And actually, less than 50% of PID cases that are positive for either organism itself. Uh, it's unclear if mycoplasma genitalium can actually cause PID, and there's a lot of work to see that if, if MGen is potential sort of cause of PID, uh, but it has not been well established. Um, but in general, sort of any regimen that we use to treat PID needs to be effective against gonorrhea, chlamydia, um, uh, because again, negative endocircle screening does not rule out uh, upper reproductive tract disease. Remember, so when you're swabbing someone's cervix, you're swabbing their cervix itself, uh, but you can't actually swab their uterus or, or whatnot. So, so upper tract disease can sometimes be missed even with a negative NAT test. The biggest change, actually, from the twenty uh, in the twenty twenty one guidance for PID is the addition of of uh, anaerobic coverage or anaerobes uh, treatment of anaerobes itself uh, in 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 PID. And so the the newest recommendation is is really ceftriaxone, doxycycline, uh, plus metronidazole, uh, and that I think recently came out in the ACE trial in uh, in the New England Journal itself. Um, treatment should be initiated really as soon as presumptive diagnosis has been made uh, because really you want to prevent long-term sequelae uh, and that's really dependent on early administration of these appropriate antibiotics. Again, you want to get at uh, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and, and a good amount of anaerobic coverage with, with, the, with the metronidazole. Um, and again, uh, in women with PID of mild to moderate clinical severity, you can, you know, parental and or oral regimens appear to have similar efficacy. Uh, but for severe PID, uh, you really want to go with complete parental um, uh, regimens. Um, that would be sort of IV ceftriaxone, IV doxycycline, and IV metronidazole um, to make sure you're getting adequate concentrations in, in the reproductive organs itself to try to reduce that bacterial burden uh, as quickly as possible. Yeah. 
Um, and so uh, I definitely have gotten this call. So s- someone calls you and says, but they have a penicillin allergy. <laughs> um, uh, you don't know if it's real or not. So I, I don't know how that, how, how do you sort of talk to your, um, to the person on the other end of the phone on sort of how to treat that patient? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question. I think uh, when we talk about um, penicillin allergies, uh, it's something I love to talk about uh, because I think it's really important to know, like, what is the allergy, right? So it's it's really important to, to really um, figure out, you know, if this is first of all an allergy that they've had in the in the recent past or remote past, and if they've been able to tolerate any beta lactams really since then, uh, or, or or not, uh, in the um, uh, penicillin 10, 15 years ago used to have a lot of derivatives in it, and so oftentimes we think people who developed allergies then were really to the derivatives and not to penicillin itself. Penicillin now is much more purified. Uh, and so thinking about, you know, that's why we there's been a lot of talk about, you know, challenging folks to, you know, penicillin in a clinic or, or want to see what the potential reaction is. If this person uh, was truly allergic to penicillin itself, um, the secondary regimen uh, would be a clindagentamicin regimen itself. And so that used to be another sort of um, uh, standard regimen for PID, but that has now been demoted to an alternative regimen in the 2021 guide- guidelines. Uh, just because you have suboptimal anaerobic coverage, because Clinda just doesn't get the same amount of anaerobic coverage you would need. Um, but if they do have a truly defined um, penicillin allergy, then cl- uh, Gent Clinda would be uh, your treatment of choice uh, for this patient. Yeah, yeah, I think it'll it'll be nice to have it in the guidelines because I think sometimes. Clinda Jen is so ingrained from med school and lectures that I think people have a really hard time letting go of it. (laughs) Um, So that'll be nice. (laughs) Um, Well, this was an amazing review of a ton of different topics. Um, But I I like to end by asking if there are um, particular things you want to emphasize or just any other sort of final thoughts that you have. No, no, I, I think, you know, I, I think as ID clinicians, um, sexual health is well within our realm itself. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's been, uh, I think being able to provide sort of affirming care um, helps all of our patients, regardless of whether they're OPAT patients, HIV patients, PrEP patients, or just our general primary care patients itself. I think approaching sexual health from sort of a non-judgmental lens and, and really allowing the patient to drive the conversations and drive what they feel is important for their health is is uh, something that I find very important to do and really centering it on that. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for coming yeah, on the show. Yeah. Um, hopefully you, so you can come me. back and see us again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited to be part of this experience. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into another awesome episode of Febrile. You can check out our website, febrilepodcast.com, for our post-episode consult notes, links to references, and the graphics for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Let me know topics that you're interested in, who you want to feature on future shows, and I'm always on the lookout for new fellows or trainees who want to join and help create content. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.